0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at Two Guys to the dark tower You can also email us at Two Guys dark tower at gmail.com. In this episode, we will finish Book Three of the Dark Tower, The Wastelands,
1: covering Chapter Six. Riddle, and Wastelands. Let's start the show! Jay, this is our 19th episode. Very ominous for a Dark Tower podcast. Ooh, it must have some
0: deep, deep meaning.
1: Yes. Look deep within your heart and see if you can figure it out. So, for this short chapter that ends our book, our catette needs to solve Blaine's initial riddle so that they can get the train primed and leave Lud before Blaine destroys it. Then, as they travel through the wastelands towards the Dark Tower, Roland strikes a bargain with a suicidal Blaine that may just save their lives. Then the book and the series comes to a satisfying conclusion as Stephen King ends the Dark Tower trilogy with an author's note. In fact, this book does not come to a satisfying conclusion whatsoever. It ends on a cliffhanger, as Stephen King leaves us with our catette riding in Blaine and everyone's deaths on the line and what will happen. But luckily for readers, they found out fairly quickly when book four came out, shortly thereafter.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, shortly thereafter.
1: <laughs> How many years was it between these two books? Well, it's my understanding it was six years, Jay, that it, between the two books. Um, I wouldn't know since this is my first time reading it. And as soon as I finished it, I had book four right next to me that I could pick up and start reading.
0: How convenient for you.
1: Unlike people like me who were reading these in
0: real time. That's why I read books one, two, and three so many times because it took several years for book four to come out. And I had time to read book one, two, and three (laughs) like three times over because I was just really anxious for more Dark Tower story. So I just reread what I had. It was a long time before that fourth book came out. It really felt like forever.
1: So Jay, I don't think you're the only one who felt this way. Um, as I was doing some research for our podcast, I came across on Goodreads, uh, the number one review is by Kemper, uh, is his username on Goodreads. And he gave this a four-star review, The, the Wastelands. Um, and he starts it off by saying, this book contains the biggest lie a writer ever told me. It's in the author's note at the end. And he quotes from from Stephen King, the fourth volume in The Tale of the Dark Tower should appear, always assuming the continuation of constant writer's life and constant reader's interest in the not-too-distant future. That ends the quote. And then Kemper goes on to say, it took six years for the next book to come out. Six goddamn years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that is is like the first
0: few lines of a, I don't know, (laughs) 300-word... review.
1: (laughs) But, you know, he's got some really good, interesting points in there. Like, five goddamn years later, I had gone from Stephen King and Dark Tower fan to the kind of crazy, or crazed fury usually reserved for jilted lovers. It didn't help that King was cranking out big fat books, including some utter shit, like Insomnia and Rose Matter. Yet no fourth Dark Tower book.
0: Hey, Insomnia had some redeeming qualities. (laughs) And it's Dark Tower adjacent.
1: What's funny is that he wrote this review, if I'm looking at this correctly, I want to say it was 2007 is when he wrote the initial review. Yeah, so this was what, 10 years then after uh, book four would have come out. And he says, the odd thing is that it still kind of pisses me off every now that the series is finished. I get that same sense of frustration when I read this, remembering the six goddamn years between books while seeing all kinds of other King novels come out. It's too bad because this is my favorite of the first three books until frustration turned it into an irritating loose end. And he goes on to say that it makes him a small, petty person. Deep in my shriveled black soul, I am resentful and jealous of anyone who reads the series now or who started reading it when the last three books were coming out like clockwork at the end. They didn't suffer like the ones who read this and waited six years. They then read the fourth one and waited And then all caps in bold, six more goddamn years for the fifth one. Yeah, that's right. Between 1991 and 2003, Stephen fucking King, one of the most prolific writers I've ever read, managed to write just one goddamn Dark Tower book. And if that minivan had not very nearly killed his procrastinating ass, I'd probably still be waiting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was a pretty scary moment when he got hit by the van because I like this reviewer was very paranoid. I was, um, I was feeling those George R. R. Martin, you know, feelings <laughs> that everybody has now for Game of Thrones. You know, is he ever going to write another book? Is he going to live long enough to finish the series of books? You know, the, those questions kept coming up. And then King gets hit by a car and almost <laughs> dies. So, like our worst fears were seemed to be coming true, and he had a few books. I think three books left in the series that he had, you know, he promised yep. us seven books and then he's almost killed by, by a car while he's just walking down the road near his house. That was a, that was a pretty <laughs> stressful time.
1: I remember also being upset when he got hit by the car. I was not a Dark Tower fan at the time, so I was just sad that one of my favorite writers was in bad shape and I went through a similar thing a few years, a few years ago when he said he was retiring and not going to write any more books and he's since written like another 10, so... Now yeah. I'm just like, eh, everything will be fine.
0: Well, I mean, I, I had some of those feelings of sadness too, but the, the anxiety about the Dark Tower story ever being finished, I think, kind of superseded by just basic humanity.
1: It, it reminds me, I think it's Neil Gaiman who was asked by a fan who was a George R. R. Martin fan, and they asked Neil Gaiman like, hey, get on this guy's case. Why isn't he finishing the Song of Ice and Fire books? I want it, and Neil, Neil Gaiman said, George R.R. R. Martin is not your bitch. Mm-hmm. It's, you should remember that. You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, as my preschool teachers would say to my kids, so just deal with it. Yeah. Anyhow, Kemper liked the book. He gave it four stars. I've liked this book. I know Jay. I think you've liked, I, you've enjoyed this book, and I know yeah, very much. Uh, one of our friends and listeners has also said that it's one of his favorite books. It seems there's a lot of fan piece to this. But as we look at the ending, is this a cop out? Like, do we feel like we got our money's worth with this book, where it ends on a you know 1940s movie serial cliffhanger of a train going off into the distance and everybody's life at stake with no resolution?
0: Yeah, I really struggled with that. And despite the fact that King directly acknowledges his very abrupt and awkward ending in the afterword for the book, I don't think that shining a light on it changes the <laughs> fact that it's very problematic. And then to pick up book four six years later and see that he has reprinted several pages from the tail end of book three so that he can conclude this this cliffhanger, it it makes me feel like... Why didn't he just conclude this moment in the story in book three? I I think that would have been a wonderful way to end this book. Just end it on, you know, conclude this scenario. We know that our heroes are trapped in a train and they must ask a riddle to escape with their lives. How is that going to turn out? I don't know
1: because it's a cliffhanger. But why can't we just end the book knowing how that turns out? Well, perhaps uh, perhaps Stephen hadn't come up with the riddle yet that would, would do that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, I need
0: six years to figure out what that riddle will be. <laughs> he was checking with his artificial intelligence computer at home <laughs> and he hadn't stumped it yet. Yeah. I mean, is this a, a wise writing choice? Is this a wise marketing choice? is is this a bad writing choice um, or was this just like i can't think of what happens next i'm i just wrote a 400 plus page manuscript i'm exhausted i i just can't i can't keep writing this story right now so i'm just going to stop i'm literally going to just stop writing and that will be the end of my book is that what it was i don't well, know if anybody has that info
1: no i don't know either um so Stephen King's Green Mile mm-hmm. also came out in the mid nineties so uh it would be after this book but before the fourth book yep. and that was a experiment in serial storytelling uh that was originally published as six pieces um mm-hmm. I think it was one it was one a month over a one a month yep over a period of time and it was obviously a format that he enjoyed right playing with the serial storytelling of a mm-hmm. of a of a you know i think he he likened it to dickens at the time where you know what's going to happen next um so to some extent i think it's something that's interested him um we obviously see that it works nowadays in things like game of thrones or lost or tv shows that end with these cliffhangers that carry over from one season to another so I'm not sure if it's a horrible thing to do. It's a little bit different in a book, but I don't think King can win here, right? We, we give King a hard time when he does end books, no matter how they end, it seems like, mm-hmm. whether he ties them nice and tidy with the hand of God coming out in the stand, or if things trail off in other books with just sort of it being left vague, or in this case where, hey, we're in the middle of the story and let's end it this way. So I don't think King can win.
0: Yeah, I mean he had that other experiment that didn't work out, the plant. I don't know if you remember when he did that.
1: I do remember he was, the plant. He
0: was trying out direct e publication and basically said, I'll give you guys this book for a dollar or something. Like it was just all you need to do is be on the honor system and give me one dollar and I will give you the whole book in installments. And not enough people gave him the dollar, so he said, Well, you you breached my <laughs> My contract of the honor system with you guys. So I'm not going to finish writing this.
1: And he didn't. Nope. And I, was, I've, I've, I thought that I've, was
0: actually pretty cool that he said, screw you.
1: <laughs> see, on the other hand, I paid my dollar. So I was very upset that so I didn't did get I. my.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so there's one thing that, that made this choice to end the book on a cliffhanger. There was a link back to what happens in book two. Book two doesn't really end on a cliffhanger the same way, but. Book two is titled The Drawing of the Three. Mm-hmm. And in that, Roland encounters three doors, and he enters the mind of three individuals, but he only draws two of them into his world. Correct. And then in the beginning of book three, he draws Jake through yet another door. And that's the, basically the first part of book three. Why didn't he have Jake be the third person in the book, The Drawing of the Three? Perhaps that was a plan at some point. Maybe that's why that British edition of the book had another uh, had a, a figure on the cover that could have been Jake. Sure. Uh, it just, now that you can look back at the whole series, it seems like if you, if you just make this one long story and take away all the book covers, it kind of doesn't matter. But if you could change where those book covers begin and end the sections of the books, to me, I think it makes more sense to have Jake's drawing in the drawing of the three. And I think it makes more sense to finish this final episode with Blaine, where we end this cliffhanger, by actually completing that and starting book four with something thats not that, isn't, that <laughs> wasn't a cliffhanger in book three.
1: It frustrates me. Are you against cliffhangers in general, Jay? No, I don't think so. I just think uh, maybe
0: doing a cliffhanger on something that you need to wait six years to find the resolution of. And for that to be something that this isn't a spoiler, but the beginning of book four, as I mentioned, concludes this cliffhanger scene. Mm. But King doesn't even do it the honor of making it part of the book proper. It is the prologue of book four. Yep. So that's like him doubling down on the fact that, yeah, this really didn't belong in this book, but I didn't write it yet when book three came out. (laughs) So, oh well. So I feel like. I
1: feel like it was like a swing and a miss for King in this particular instance. Got it. Fair enough. I'm not too bothered by it, but again, I'm not the one waiting six years. Yeah. So- maybe
0: I still still hold some of that bitterness and resentment all these years <laughs> later.
1: All right. We've, we've talked about how this is a fairly straightforward section. There's a lot of... Uh, discussion between Blaine and our catette about what's actually happening and and what they're going to do. But as per our usual custom, we're going to talk a little bit more about the book as a whole and and sort of the thematic image. What's interesting for me is that this is in a book called The Wastelands. Mm -hmm. We quote the poem a couple different times. This section is book two of the book The Wastelands, and it's titled A Heap of Broken Images, and we do start to see this is the first time we've actually encountered the actual wastelands of midworld here. Yeah. The train Blaine leaves the station, Blaine destroys Lud uh, through the poison gas and the explosions and the train is a monorail that goes through a cliff or through a you know out, out through a tunnel and into over this cliff and all of a sudden we seem to be in another world. Um, and that if you've got the illustrated edition of the book, you see some of these horrible, you know, monsters that are here. And Blaine is able to show these creatures in the wastelands to them in very vivid imagery by becoming invisible. Well, it looks like it's invisible. They can see through Blaine's walls. In fact, he explains, "Oh, I've got cameras outside, and it just yeah. you mimics the fact that it looks like it's invisible." And they see these awful, horrible monsters and. To some extent, it is almost a heap of broken images that they see as they go through and they see these tripod creatures and these awful pterodactyls and just these weird plant life yeah, that's like, straining steam, to survive. Steam vent worms and yeah, just giant beetles. And so this is the first time we get this sort of, hey, this is what the wastelands mean. We've had five chapters that have alternately taken place in our world and in different sections of mid-world, you know, the, the town of Rivers Crossing or the- Science fiction y type town of Ludd, but this is where we see, oh crap, this is what they've been talking about all this time. The world's moved on into this, especially this part, into this horrible, desolate, science fiction slash fantasy slash post apocalyptic place. Uh, but it's uh, not something that a nuclear war has done, it's something much worse.
0: Right. And up to this point, we've kind of felt like Roland's world has moved on and in doing so, degenerated back to this like frontier town type of place where everything sort of feels a little bit like a western these like small towns and collections of of people who are on the edges of of you know a desert or at the base of a mountain range or something like that they're living simple rustic lives and they're getting by the way humans have for hundreds of years but then we when we cross this barrier outside of lud we go from King's world to like H.G. Wells's world, you know, like we we go from a place that is broken down to a place that seems like you can't even exist on the same planet. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got the you know the tripods and the poison atmosphere and things like that. So I get that King needed to give his his characters a reason to make the risk of Blaine you know worth it. Right, because he he gave them a landscape that they couldn't possibly progress through. If it weren't for Blaine, their quest is over. Correct. You know, we don't know that there's a way around this. So if they want to follow the, the path of the beam to the tower, they need to go through this and there's no way a human being can survive it. So we we have Blaine to ferry them through, but it just seems like the difference is too drastic. Hmm. Like why doesn't one of the pterodactyls fly into LUD? or <laughs> Or why don't the giant beetles tunnel into you know some nearby farm village or why doesn't a pterodactyl fly into river crossing and swoop up an old person for, for a <laughs> snack these things don't seem to happen and no. the weather never carries the poison so it's like it's like that wall outside of lud maybe it has some magical properties or maybe just the simple geography of that sort of bottomless endless cliff that the that ends the, the that's the boundary of the city Really is the boundary of, of the wastelands.
1: Yes, and we've got this idea of wastelands throughout. So, um, when we see Jake for the first time in this book, you know he is able to find a wasteland of some extent, to some extent in Manhattan, right? There's a empty lot abandoned that just has you know not much there, as opposed to everything else that's happening in Manhattan. That's where he finds a purple blade of grass. Mm-hmm. You know they, they're going through what we thought were wastelands. There's all this discussion about and even you know way back in book 1 we have this discussion between the man in black and roland about how society is starting to break down but really we've never seen it to this extent like you're saying and whether that's a part of the world moving on or if it's if it's something that the dark tower is causing to happen you know we get this i i don't know if the idea is that the dark tower represents order and it's falling apart and so things are going crazy not only with time and distance and place but also with the creatures and the landscape as well uh mm-hmm. or the dark tower's chaos and as, as its power is moving out or as you get closer to the dark tower things get even crazier but it is a, a a big change of pace from what we are used to which is a man and a gun chasing a guy in the desert then we get these magical doors on a beach then we get this weird machinery and now we're in this odd biology that doesn't even seem to make sense and i think you mentioned that it 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 almost blends this fantasy sci-fi genre that we've been talking about but we're also getting this idea that there's magic and fact or magic and superstition like there's these alternately alternate pieces that are coming together here right and we see this best represented in blaine blaine is what seems to be almost an all intelligent machine that is breaking down and is becoming very unmachine like he talks about how he's going insane and how things don't seem to process it brought me back to hal from 2001 a space odyssey where we see a machine not acting like a machine should as it's as it's starting to break down mentally
0: yeah it it's own logic starts to fight against itself like it it keeps encountering things that are Every time it follows one path of logic, it's, it doesn't work. So right. it, it's like, you know, it does not compute kind of thing. And <laughs> eventually the, it, it falls apart. But yeah, like Blaine says in part nine of this section, he says, I am perfectly aware that I am suffering a degenerative disease, which humans call going insane. Repeated diagnostic checks have failed to reveal the source of the problem. I can only conclude that this is a spiritual malaise beyond my ability to repair. <laughs> so like, so yeah, he's, he's left with the only logical leap that this isn't mechanical and this isn't environmental. It, so it must be spiritual. Right. And, <laughs> and what, what I think is really happening is that blame, just like the whole world is moving on. So things are, degrading things are just slowing down or speeding up or or expanding or contracting in ways that they shouldn't and Blaine seems to have with all of his data and all of his sensors or whatever he has that can d- detect things in the world he has such a direct literal connection to the world around him that because the world is moving on the information that he's getting the data that he has doesn't add up and because of that, it's causing him to go insane. That's what's making him degrade and him move on, is because he has his, his tentacles or his, his roots in so much
1: of the world. If the world isn't making sense, he can't either. Yep. And it manifests itself in his interest in riddles, Blaine's interest in riddles, which riddles, the first riddle that they get, which is the prime piece, does have mm-hmm. logic behind it. Like, it's yeah. very straightforward. You need to figure out what primes me and run it backwards. And it's, oh, it's the prime numbers. And Deta is able to figure that out, and we'll get to that in a minute. But as they start to play more riddle games, you realize that these are something that you wouldn't think a computer would be good at. And I know that recently there's been um, a challenge where they get computers to play Jeopardy. And oftentimes, Mm -hmm. the computer has the hardest time with the clues that have a little bit of a riddle in them because computers aren't necessarily the best at understanding metaphor or making connections that a human brain might make. Um, So it's, again, an interesting manifestation of Blaine that what is usually logical and fact-based is manifesting itself in, hey, let's play riddles, which is not something you would think a logical computer would want to do.
0: But there is something that is... Computational about a riddle, and that's one of the things that Roland gets really frustrated with Eddie about. Is <laughs> yes. like these are not jokes; these are a, a good riddle, and even the hardest of riddles are things that if you think about it the right way, you can solve it without any additional information.
1: Yeah, it's
0: not just like oh, uh, it, it's not about a punchline; it's about that you are presented with all the information you need to solve it. And I think that's what appeals to Blaine as a. A thinking machine.
1: Yep. It'll be interesting because, and I'm just making this connection as we're talking now, we talked in the last chapter about how Roland was good at riddles because he was able to think around corners, right? That was sort of the, the idea behind the riddle that mm-hmm. um, his teacher had told him, right? That you needed to have this ability to think around corners. And Blaine being a monorail is on a straight line. Going forward, there's really no corners that he can go around. He's straight and narrow on the straight and narrow. So I wonder if the bet that they make for their lives is going to be solved because Roland will be able to think around a corner that Blaine will not be able to. Hmm.
0: Something about going off the rails or something like that, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but just I think the idea of like that's how you can trick somebody, right? Is to come up with a riddle that, like you said, is obvious to somebody who can have that next level of thinking but in this case it's got to be something that what seems to be an all-knowing computer isn't going to be able to figure out or hasn't already heard before or doesn't have in his files so i for one i'm looking forward to the cliffhanger that we're left on i'm going to think well, of what sort of rills <laughs> these this could be i'm going to make you wait six years before <laughs> you can find out uh But really, in the Dark Tower and in Midworld, six years could be six minutes or six seconds or 600 years. We'll never know. Exactly. You could fall asleep on a (laughs) mountainside in a Golgotha and then wake up exactly (laughs) 10 years later. Or is it? Or is it? So one of the other connections with the wastelands is one that Susanna makes as she talks about her experience with the drawers, which we've heard mentioned a couple times already in this book. And she instantly makes that connection between the wasteland is the drawers from my, my previous life as Detta.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um, in part three, there's a line that says, Detta threw back her head and laughed, but the poisoned half-mad bitterness was gone from the sound. She seemed genuinely amused at the foolishness of her mental twin. Mm. So basically, Detta is laughing at... Odetta or maybe just it's Susanna but it's whatever whatever part of her persona that isn't Detta she thinks of as foolish as a fool and that made me kind of think like it still seems like there are two warring personas within Susanna and they're aware of each other but they still seem to distrust and dislike each other but and that makes me feel like they really weren't merged into a new third whole person. And we've, we've talked about this before, but yep. what's really going on here, or what
1: hasn't gone on here that we feel like maybe should have? Yeah, it, they're, they're definitely distinct. I mean, the fact that even when they're solving the riddle, they have to call Detta forward to figure it out because Susanna's not good at math and Detta is, and she's able to understand prime numbers. And again, the
0: analogy back to Eddie. It's like if they need to do, you know, scrounge up some antibiotics, Eddie doesn't have to do heroin to remember how to <laughs> how to do something he did in his previous life. He, he doesn't need to regress to the character that he was before he grew to the the gunslinger he is today. So if Susanna is a a merged persona of of Detta and Odetta, and Susanna is the gunslinger, then, okay, draw on your experience as either of those people, but don't make it that you have to switch back and forth. Right. They're like, oh, Detta was the one who was good at math, so we need to hypnotize you to so that you can be Detta and solve this riddle. Yep. And then she slowly comes out of that hypnosis and returns to her Susanna self. And I just – I I still struggle with this and still feel like it's a cop out that we're doing the whole Dr. Jekyll thing and <laughs> enough already. Just let her be this person that has strengths and weaknesses like other characters.
1: Yep. Yep. I agree. I did think it was a nice connection though between that place, the drawers where Detta would take the white boys that she teased and you know, mm-hmm. thought of and this this sort of bad place in her mind. And she instantly makes this connection to the wastelands. Um, You know, obviously, this is a much more extreme version of a a horrible of a horrible place than anything she could have imagined. Uh, But but it does exist.
0: Yeah, I wonder if like if Detta, when she was in New York, somehow had like a uh, somehow had her own secret door to the wastelands. Mm. Like, would she have taken? her white boy victims to that place, would (laughs) she have taken the four special blue plate there? Because that's, that seemed to be what she was seeking out. These, these places that she called the drawers were her wastelands on, on a, you know, on that smaller scale. Right. But it was because they were this bad place, this place that these places near where she lived, that she associated with trouble or just people doing bad things to each other. That that's why she 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 was drawn to them. And so and likewise she seems to be drawn to this place. Even though if she were to step outside of Blaine, this place would consume and kill her her instantly. She's still like there's still something about her that or about the dead-up part of her persona that somehow relates to this.
1: Agreed. But it was nice to see this all come together because I was wondering as we were reading the book why this book was called The Wastelands. And it wasn't until we got to this chapter where we actually see, wow, because you know, you can make a fairly good connection. Like the desert that they were walking through initially in The Gunslinger was an obvious wasteland. It killed his horse. Yeah. There's no water. There's no food. And it isn't until you get up to a place like this that you realize, wow, this world is much, much worse than it could be. And like you said earlier, it's almost like a different world entirely as they travel with Blaine. Maybe it's
0: the knowledge of things like this that make the man in black always seem like he's in on a joke. And maybe mm. it's just simply that he knows about this place. Maybe he's he can freely travel there because he is he has such powerful magic. But the fact that he knows just how bad parts of Roland's world actually are. Yeah. And he sees Roland struggling in a in a little town like <laughs> Tull and he's like, this is hilarious. It is honestly hilarious because
1: if you can't make you it through have, this yeah, yeah you have no idea what you're you doing. have no idea yep and you
0: know and also there are the these other powerful magical creatures that the man in black warns roland about you know that these are you're going to deal with these people in your future and he says you know when he says legion and lightning strikes and the rocks are <laughs> loosened from the mountaintop and all this stuff so clearly other more powerful and more dangerous beings in the world or in the multiverse of the worlds of the tower that and again so the man of black is like yeah you have no idea and so i i mean maybe if you had that much knowledge or that much more knowledge maybe things would seem hilarious if you tended to be kind of just like a insensitive (laughs) jerk already
1: (laughs) yeah So it's interesting because in the author's note, um, you know, we get to the end, we end with this cliffhanger with Blaine and and we don't know what's going to happen. They're racing onward. It's very fast speeds. Um, And Stephen King promises in the next book that there'll be a resolution of Blaine and then more TikTok man and more Walter, the man in black, um, in addition to learning more about Roland's younger life in the next book. And I'm wondering where exactly are the TikTok man and Walter and how are they going to make it through the wastelands? So that's something else that's sort of percolating in the back Mm. of my mind. Wait,
0: did King say it was Walter, the man in black in his
1: afterword? Uh, I'm sorry. He said, in the afterword, Stephen King says that we will be reacquainted with both the TikTok man and that puzzling figure Walter called the wizard or the ageless stranger. So he doesn't call him the man in black, but I may have made that jump. I'm doing a mental abacus calculations
0: here. <laughs> um, okay. So we're not saying that the man in black is Walter because the man in black was his other name in Gilead was not Walter. Walter was a, a different person. That right? is true. Walter I, was, was Stephen Deschane's advisor and Walter was the one who had the affair with Roland's mother. Yes. And instigated Roland's early trial of manhood. Yes, okay. The man in black was not that guy.
1: <laughs> Correct. As far as we know. But then also the last two characters we saw were not Walter or the man in black, it was the Randall flag stand-in and the TikTok man.
0: But that...
1: Randall flag.
0: Character. The, yeah, the, the
1: Fannin right. guy. Yep. Um, hasn't he said it been called Walter or something like that? Richard Fannin, yes. I think I might be getting confused because I also was just reading an article with Matthew McConaughey where he was talking about his character, Walter, who is the yeah. man in black in the movie. So I'm sure all will be revealed and be made clear. But my initial question was I can only imagine how they're getting across the wastelands because yeah. my understanding is that Blaine is the only game in town as far as transportation um, right
0: even the gas mask that tiktok man puts on i don't think that's going to help him get across these no
1: tripod beetle strewn cracks of doom unless he's doing a uh, cape fear type of thing and he's hanging on the bottom of blaine <laughs> <laughs> with, with all of his
0: homemade prison tattoos
1: exactly and then when he when they, when they eventually get off it'll be like the Simpsons cape fear and he'll stand on a bunch of rakes keep mm-hmm. getting hit in the face. Uh, whack. <laughs> uh, uh, whack. Oh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Jay as we like to do at the end of each one of these books look at some of the critical takes on how this book has been received. So Goodreads is currently at a 4.2 stars out of 5. Barnes and Noble has it as a 4.6 out of five. And these are users of those services who are doing rankings. And mm-hmm. Library Thing has a 4.8 out of five. So generally well received. Again, we've talked before about how, you know, people are more likely to be positive on some of these things because they've actually read the book. And you, especially on a third book, you wouldn't think you've gone that far. Yeah. I overall liked this book a lot as well. I know, like I said earlier, we've had friends and acquaintance and listeners say that it's one of their favorites. Publishers Weekly had a review that was generally positive, but it was a little bit short. They said that this book had charming bits of whimsy, some splendidly tense moments, and one rip-roaring horror scene. At times, however, it is pretentious, and the direction of the sprawling plot uncertain. So, a little bit of a mixed review there. I can assume that the rip-roaring horror scene is... Jake escaping from the mansion?
0: I would guess, yep.
1: Yep, yep. It was one of my favorite scenes in the book.
0: I was trying to map all of these adjectives to parts of the book. I wonder what your thoughts are on the whimsy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I I would place the sprawling, uncertain plot. I'd blame that mostly on the ending of the book, maybe.
1: (laughs) Well, I think maybe for me... The whole piece with Lud does seem a little bit sprawling and unnecessarily so. For the amount of time we spend in Lud, which is not much, um, there's a lot of buildup in River Crossing about the pubes and the greys, and it doesn't mm-hmm. really come to a whole lot. And all those characters are killed off by Blaine, it seems like, fairly quickly. So yeah, I, that, that part I don't think is necessarily uh, needed. The pretentiousness is, uh, you know, we're going to see in the next review uh the pretentiousness is probably all the references that king is making throughout the uh book mm. i would say the charming bit of whimsy is jake in new york in the uh in the manhattan bookstore yeah okay it is both charming and whimsical in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> good old calvin tower <laughs> Uh, so Booklist had what I thought was a really positive review. So this was, again, at the time of the publication, they say that everything in the Dark Tower book three is pumped up a couple of notches. The action, the suspense, the cultural elusiveness, the inventiveness, and in fact, the volume for loudspeakers blare ear-splittingly throughout the tale's biggest, most spectacular, though penultimate climax. Um, And that's in reference to the ZZ Top record that is being Mm. played. Yes. (laughs) You hate the ZZ Top joke. Um, You know, uh, they say, as usual, no, more than usual for King, there's lots of mayhem magic and also sheer book learning in this yarn. The well acculturated and wannabe well acculturated will revel in King's borrowings from everything from medieval riddles to 18th century poet and hypnotist William Cowper to The Land of Oz, to T.S. Eliot, to Hollywood movies of the 40s, to post-World War II children's books, to rock and roll. I don't know if he's aware that that post-World War II children's book is not a real book, in fact, but we'll let the reviewer get away with that. Um, The man, meaning Stephen King, is a pop polymath, and in The Dark Tower, he's pouring everything he knows and loves into a vast romance of the imagination that is as quirky and spooky and funny and dazzling as The Arabian Nights, or The Great Medieval Romances of Europe. Wow, that is a positive review. Yeah. By Ray Olson, again, in Booklist.
0: It's uh,
1: kind of interesting in the the beginning of book four,
0: Scheherazade is, uh, is mentioned.
1: Ah, that, that is, is an allusion interesting.
0: To the Arabian
1: Nights directly. Very interesting. And he obviously couldn't know about it since that book didn't come out for six more years. Oh. <laughs> uh. So all in all, a fairly well-received book. We'll see how that continues throughout the rest of the series. Uh, Readers, we'd love to hear your opinions on the first three books. If I was ranking these three books, Jay, uh, my favorite so far of the three is the drawing of the three. So I would have number two be my number one book. I would have number three be my number two book. And then Gunslinger would be my least favorite of the first three.
0: Well, since we're ranking, I guess I'll I'll throw in mine. I still think that book one is my favorite.
1: Very good. I
0: I know I go against a lot of the grain out there, but it's the book that made me fall in love with this character of Roland and the the magic of this world. So I think it's like book one, book two, book three in that order for me. So (laughs) um, Because I, I think I like book two a lot. Like I really, really like that book. But where book one is strong, I think it's stronger than book two, in my opinion.
1: Interesting. We'll see if your rankings continue in that order as we progress on <laughs> through the series, which wouldn't be a very good thing for Stephen King. So we'll see how that goes. Jay, it's time for fun stuff. All right. I love fun
0: stuff. <laughs> I'll kick us off with fun stuff. I had some great lines that I liked. Okay. So let's see. In part six, King refers to the inhabitants of Ludd as Luddites, so
1: <laughs> nailed it. Very good. You get the no prize. Congratulations. <laughs> right. No prize for me. Just as you called it last uh, week. I'm sure it had uh, nothing to do with the fact that you've read these books multiple times. But you expect me to remember something <laughs> that minor. <laughs> good job. Um,
0: and let's see, uh, what was the other one? In part eight, there's a great line or part of a line that reads... Like preachers meditating on the inevitability of damnation. Mm-hmm. I just I liked how it was the the holy men thinking about damnation and that it is inevitable and it's probably only going to be the holy men who think about damnation because the people who don't give a crap about damnation they don't they just keep on doing stuff that's going to get them damned. I guess. <laughs> <Yeah. So. laughs>
1: I suppose that is true. Yeah. <laughs> What's one of your fun stuffs? So one of my fun thing stuffs is that uh, early on, the katet needs to solve the riddle of the prime numbers. And I immediately thought, hey, I'm reading books. I don't want to do no math stuff. But <laughs> luckily, luckily, ha- they have Detta there that they can hypnotize to get into Detta's mind so that Detta can figure it out because they explicitly say that Susanna is no good at math. Right. She, she can't figure it out. So they get into Detta's head and Ded is able to immediately figure out the prime number piece. Um, but then after Susanna comes back to the forefront and they're inside Blaine, um, Blaine talks about how it's about 8,000 wheels of distance that they need to travel or about 7,000 miles. If you prefer that unit of measure at my top speed, we will reach the terminating point of my run in eight hours and 45 minutes. And Susanna, who's no good at math, I remind you, immediately says, 800 plus miles an hour over the ground. Jesus, God. So <laughs> she's able to do that math in her head pretty quick to do that miles for an hour. It'd be one thing if he, if he had said, you know, it's 10,000 miles and we're going to be traveling this fast because then it's a nice even number. But those are two hard numbers to do immediate math in your head to get at that. So Yeah, she was thinking back to her uh her final exam
0: days in high school. You know. <laughs> if an insane artificial intelligence train is traveling from Lud to Topeka. <laughs> from Lud to Topeka at its top speed of eight hundred miles an hour. Do you have some more fun stuff? Another fun stuff item I had was when the group first meets Blaine and he's doing all of these Maybe they're not terrible. Maybe they're actually fantastic impressions (laughs) Uh, because he he can make himself sound like anything. Eddie thinks anyone who thinks impressions of old movie actors is funny absolutely cannot be trusted. It's like a law of nature. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) I think quoting movies can be funny, but maybe... That's part of my personality flaw, (laughs) (laughs) but simply doing impressions of John Wayne and thinking that on its face is funny. Yeah. That there's something wrong with you there.
1: You know who else thinks that way? The same as you do, Jay, my wife, Melanie (laughs) turns out that when we were first dating, I would do a Sean Connery impression and I would do Mm -hmm. my, I would do my Sean Connery impression a lot. Uh, mainly trying to mimic his character in the untouchables (laughs) Ah. after spending a whole evening doing my sean connery impression she told me if i did it one more time she'd break up with me (laughs) (laughs) so now the world has lost my sean connery impression but on the other hand i can now be trusted because i'm not doing impressions of old actors so there's that
0: yeah well, I think doing an impression, doing impression of actors like if, when somebody does Christopher Walken, it's not funny if they just say the thing that Christopher Walken said. It's funny when they make Christopher Walken say weird things.
1: Ah, uh, okay. I've got another fun stuff, Jay. On the same page with Blaine, and I'll I'll say you know Blaine's impressions are one thing, but Blaine overall is a fun character. I like Blaine. I like yeah. I I would I I don't. I have a feeling Blaine's not going to be in the movie that's coming up, but I want to see Blaine on screen. I want to hear Blaine doing doing impressions. I want to hear Blaine mocking our our oh, who, characters. Who would in, you in in cast Le- as the voice of Blaine? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Christopher Walken. <laughs> Christopher Walken. I mean, it seems obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd have to give that some thought. Let's put that. I'll put a poll up on Twitter. Yeah. Who would you cast as the voice of Blaine?
0: Yeah, I great think we'll get some, get some great answers from our listeners on that.
1: Yeah. So Blaine gives our quartet a map of where they'll be traveling to. And there's like a little red dot representing Blaine. And on one side of the map is Ludd on the left side of the map. And the map continues through Candleton. Rilea, the falls of the hounds dasherville and then it ends in topeka and topeka is on the right side of the map and jay when i look at a map i generally think that north is at the top of the page south is at the bottom Mm -hmm. the west is to the left and the east is to the right so they're traveling from lud to topeka which in my mind looking at a map is west to east and He, Blaine, says, you will note that our course keeps firmly to the southwest along the path of the beam. Well, looking at that map, that's not to the southwest. That's, in fact, it's not even really south looking at the map. It looks like it's just east, but at best, southeast. (laughs) This is another instance, maybe, of the time and space and all cardinal directions being mixed up? Yeah, at any given
0: moment, that map just flips around and turns (laughs) upside down and inside out. Could be, could be, or maybe it's just upside down compared to how you expect it to be because you're a northern hemisphere elitist or something. And you know,
1: that you- that does sound like me. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I am. A- you look down on Australia. <laughs> well, yeah, because they're beneath us, like literally on the map. <laughs> literally on the map, so I look down on them. <laughs>
0: We have a lot of listeners in Australia. Write in if, you, if you're offended by <laughs> Sean's elite attitude towards your hemisphere.
1: Just be, just be glad that I'm not doing an awful Australian accent like our good friend Crocodile Dundee or Paul Hogan as the old actor is known. Yeah, he,
0: he's no longer Paul Hogan. He's just, he's Crocodile, just Crocodile Dundee, Dundee. Now. He changed his name
1: legally. <laughs> Any more fun stuff for you, Jay? If not, I've got one more. Let's hear it. My last fun stuff, and I don't think this is necessarily fun, but just sort of of interest, is that as they are rushing to get out of Lud, they all climb aboard Blaine, and they leave Susanna's wheelchair behind. Another in the constant struggle of making things just a little bit more difficult for our characters, either by cutting off their fingers, taking away their pants, or in this case, losing a wheelchair. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. Don't think that I, I don't think that that escaped me <laughs> yeah. or my ire. My earlier hope slash prediction of entering this city of Lud and finding technological riches that could enhance their abilities, as you said. Well, why can't Roland just get robot fingers? And right. He's back in business. You know, double fisting his his revolvers. <laughs> right. And I wanted Susanna to get you know, uh, mechanical legs, prosthetic legs that would allow her to stand and walk and run as though she never had lost her legs. And I'm sure that that technology at one time existed in LUD Sure. and might still be there to this day. Like there's an apothecary somewhere where (laughs) you can get a wrist brace for carpal tunnel syndrome and right next to it on the shelf is custom fit prosthetic legs, prosthetic legs.
1: Or if nothing else, the Professor X floating wheelchair.
0: Yeah, something. So that she at least (laughs) floats and and can move over (laughs) any terrain and maybe move faster and higher than, you know. If she had the floating wheelchair, she could have, like, their attempt to save Oi when he was getting blown
1: off the bridge, (laughs) like, would have been a whole different scenario. Yes. (laughs) So I am guessing that that is going to come up in the next book, that we no longer have a wheelchair. Yes. And might cause problems. To
0: paraphrase one of my favorite podcast teams, that is moderately fascinating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just, just in case it's been trademarked, right? <laughs> yes. All right. So we're now at the end of three books. We've made it through the first three books of this series. And we will be tackling Wizard in Glass next. And just from a logistics standpoint, we'll take a second to talk through. This book looks to be not as neatly divided up as this book or the first book. Um, We're going to do a lot of uh, chopping up because there's really long sections and there's some really short sections. So Jay and I are going to do our best to find out how we can break this up into a place where we're not asking you to read Too many pages between uh, chapters, but at least still keeping it manageable.
0: And we're not trying to cover too much of one book in in just one conversation.
1: Exactly, because there's going to be a lot to talk about, I imagine. Um, I'm assuming. I've never read the book before. What do I know? Maybe there's nothing to talk about. Maybe it's plain Jane Mm -hmm. straightforward and there's no metaphors, no allusions, no Nothing, and Stephen King just has a very basic plot structure, and it all makes sense. It's
0: moderately fascinating.
1: (laughs) Now now we've got our own catchphrase. This is fun. (laughs) Anyhow, we're going to ease into the book. Um, We just are going to be covering the prologue in the first section, which is about 15 to 20 pages, depending on what edition you have. Um, I'm looking forward to it because it's got Dave McKean illustrations, who's one of my favorite artists. So look forward to that if you've got an illustrated version. All the more reason to not get the Kindle version. Pick up a trade paperback and see Dave McKean's wonderful illustrations. Anyhow, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we begin Book 4 of The Dark Tower, Wizard and Glass, with the prologue, Blaine. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.